All right, so have to say it. Apparently, that I say that all the time. This morning is gonna be a doozy. Hopefully, it's not that bad, as uh, Bugs Bunny say. Watch out for that first step; it's a doozy. But I don't think that pastors are generally going to choose this one, Genesis chapter thirty-eight, when they're asked to speak somewhere at a pastors' conference, at a church where they're a guest, especially not if they're trying to fundraise for something. But it's interesting how the Lord works because I looked at this chapter the other week. Uh, I just skimmed it quick. I looked at the heading. I didn't really read it a couple weeks ago when I, uh, when I knew it was coming up. And I was like, oh, just Judah and Tamar. Okay. And then I got into it. I was like, oh, this chapter. Forgot about this chapter. And I had a conversation with a friend uh, this past week and it was just through text and we we're talking about the things of life and the things that perhaps the church does share and doesn't share. And I was reminded of uh, this meme that I had seen and it says, me, how do I do taxes? School, here's a recorder. Me, what's a credit score? School. Just put it in your mouth and blow like this. Me. How do I choose the right healthcare plan? In school. Hot cross buns. That there's this thing going around where there's so many things that we need to learn in life that are practical, such as how to do your taxes, what your credit score is, how to pick a healthcare plan, and you don't learn it in school. How to have a checking account, how to save, how to invest. What's a, a wise way to approach real estate? Some of these most important topics in life are treated as taboo or not important at all in government school. Now, granted, I think that these are things you should probably learn from your parents. Uh, you know, I remember seeing my mom write checks all the time. She told me how to write checks. Um, you know, uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to save. And, you know, I've got a 401k, but it's only because my job gives it to me. And I'm trying to figure out how to invest and what can I do better. And I look back and I go, man, you know, if I had invested earlier in life or... And all these things that are practical wisdom that I know I don't really need to worry about too much because I know the Lord will handle it. But sincerely, these topics that are so important, we tend to treat as taboo, even in just a practical realm. But boy, oh boy, we surely need to teach five and six-year-olds some perverted things because those are the essential things in life. My friend and I were talking because of some news about something in the church that we'll get into. But it's something that I feel like I've noticed the past couple of years. And again, I'm not trying to seem angry or beating up. I'm just trying to highlight it and expose it that we might address it. And I think that the church tends to ignore many important topics to treat them as taboo or come at them with a totally puritanical attitude. And I'm not saying that things need to be shared, especially from the pulpit that are vulgar or that are distasteful. There definitely needs to be tact and taste involved. But sincerely, I have to wonder if a lot of the problems we have as Christians are because the church doesn't educate us at all what the Bible actually says. We don't do any meditating on the Word of God and on the implications of these things in our life. Instead, we go to the magazine of the supermarket. We read uh, an article on a website. And we get all our advice about these important things 
from places that have no idea what important really is. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We like to focus on that. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. But we skip over the part. The marriage bed is undefiled. That in marriage, the things you do with your spouse, as long as they're agreed upon, as we see, as long as God has said specifically don't do that, they're okay. They're good. It's not defiling to take part in certain things within marriage. And 1 Corinthians 7, 1-9 says, Now concerning the things which you wrote me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Paul's saying, get married, guys. What are you doing? What are you messing around for? Let the husband render to the, his wife the affection due her. And likewise, also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And you too, guys, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That's a tough one. We could have a whole message on that, and I'm not going to get into it today. Other than you are for your wife, and your wife is for you, a husband. Do not deprive one another except for consent over time. That means of intimacy. That you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Not that you're mad and you want them to sleep on the couch and punish them. But if you're going to abstain from sexual relations for a while, it better be for fasting and prayer. Why? Because you need to come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Not that these things are a concession, but that the fact is that he wishes that all people were like himself, unmarried and totally devoted to God. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner or another that. I say the unmarried of the widows, it is good for them that they remain even as I am, but they cannot exercise self-control. Let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. And the translation has passion, but it just means to burn. So there's kind of a thing there. You don't want to burn, do you? Because marriage is the place for passion, just as a fireplace is the place for fire. Let's read Proverbs 6 before we get into this because I think it has good implications for what we're going to read today. Some practical wisdom that you might think is super practical, but as we get into it, you'll see that, man, people tend to forget this. So it says, we'll start in 23. It says, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, or man if you're a woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure, lure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So he who goes into his neighbor's wife, whoever touches her shall not be innocent. And Lord, this morning, none of us are truly innocent, God, and we ask that you would forgive all our sin. Thank you that you took our shame openly on the cross for us, that you bore it all. And God, that we can be new, and that if we've stumbled in any of these points, God, that you can forgive us and lift this up and give us new life. God, we pray for the marriages. We pray for the individuals. 
God, uh, in our friends, in our family, in the church, those who would come to know you, God, that they would see that there is a better way, a real way to do life, that like we prayed earlier, that the way we do life, God, is not life, it's death. But the way, God, you instruct us and you fill us and enable us to live life is true life and not abundant. So God bless your word this morning. And uh, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you're still listening, this is at least PG-13, if not R-rated message. So uh, make sure the kiddos aren't listening. Let's read the first 11 verses of Genesis chapter 38 together this morning. It came to pass... At that time, remember, Joseph and his brothers, Joseph came out, Joseph had the dreams, they hated him, they sold him off into slavery, they were going to kill him, and they put him in a pit, Reuben tried to sneak him out of there, but they ended up selling him away into slavery. So at that time, that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, so he had a friend named Hira, and Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So her name was not Shua. Her dad's name was Shua. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. So a few years have gone by here. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at uh, Chezib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of God, sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to her brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also." Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, Lest he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. Now, if you're still listening, there's a lot going on even in these first 11 verses that, quite honestly, I'd rather skip over. But it's here and God has it here for a reason. And I think a lot of problems in life happen because we skip over the things we don't want to deal with instead of dealing with them. But we see that Judah, remember that he was the fourth, the fourth born of Leah, that his name means praise. We know that Jesus would be called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, that this, this man Judah would have so many offspring, they become a tribe of the nation of Israel, and Jesus would be called the Lion of them. But it says that he departed. He departed from his brothers in verse 1. And it's interesting that that word actually means that he went down, or that even that he bowed down. That there's this other connotation there that he not only left them and went out from their presence but almost in the, i get this sense that uh he was leaving his brothers to go become a man to go kind of try and become more like them or do things more like them i don't know but he left them and he left their presence this time so obviously joseph leaving judah has grown up now and he's at the point where he's looking to make a way and a name for himself and find himself uh, a lady and again, it's interesting that Joseph's brothers would bow down before him one day. But in a sense, Judah is in a sense maybe bowing down before them now. And I, I wonder, why does he go down to these people? If you remember, his father and his grandfather set a precedent on how to get a wife. They went away to family in another land. 
They found someone, uh, you know, especially Isaac, uh, his dad, Abraham, sent out the servant Eleazar to find a bride for him. And she was someone who was beautiful, someone who was willing to serve, and also willing to go with the man of God who, who was um, a godly woman. And who, uh, you know, after he lost his mom, was someone who was a big comfort to him. And it was at the right time that God found him a wife. And then his dad, well, his dad was running away from Esau. And he went back to that land and he found a wife. He fell in love with Rachel and he worked for her and he really loved her and she was of the right people. But then, you know, I mean, the whole story, we got tricked with Leah. And so you have to go, man, you know, what was, what was Judah's relationship like with his dad? You know, he, did, he knew his dad didn't really love his mom. He knew his dad really loved Rachel. Uh, he knew his dad also had these other ladies that he married and had kids with. So he didn't necessarily have the greatest relationship or even just the greatest example. Although his family would come from examples, we see that, and I know that this is culturally relevant, but we, we see him going to the Canaanites. We see him going to the people that they know that they're going to displace because this is the land that God had promised for them. But I don't get the picture that Judah was really looking in the right places here for a wife. Perhaps he had the pressure of seeing his brothers around girls. Perhaps the Canaanite girls were really quite attractive. Maybe they dressed a certain way and acted a certain way. And he was like, well, I'm going to go hang out with my boy and we're going to find somebody. You know, the influence of his brothers, bad or good, and the people around him. This name, this guy named Hira. It's going to affect you big time, especially, I mean, girls too. I can't relate because I'm not a girl, but growing up a guy and even at a young age and the way boys look at girls and think of girls and want to kiss them even at a young age. We talk about locker room talk. It's not just in the locker room, people. It's everywhere. There's a reason why we went out to bars and things to drink before I knew the Lord. So, well, we want to drink, but we also want to go have the potential to meet a girl. And Most of the time we were too afraid and wimpy to go talk to anybody, but for the most part, that's why we were there. When we go anywhere or do anything, well, you're having a party here. There are going to be girls there. Okay, we'll be there. That's the way guys are. In the flesh, right? And Judah, I don't think it was any different. I think Judah was departing and going down to, you know, do what guys do. We need to be careful, too, that when this passion is ignited, it's the right time. The Bible says we need to be careful about that. You know, I was very little when I was first exposed to pornography and perversion. 10, 11 years old at a friend's house. That's something that when it gets lit that early, very quickly burns and takes over. We need to be careful that we need to protect our children, even overly so from being exposed to that, especially nowadays when it's almost like they can turn on a kid show and be exposed to things that would have taken you and I ages to figure out before. We used to have to go in the woods and dig under a rock and look for something that someone hid there, and now it's, here's a cell phone your parents bought you. But Judah marries a Canaanite woman. Her dad's name is Shua, and it means wealth. So Judah's going down here. He finds, you know, maybe he's not wealthy, but this is, this is what he values in life. This is what he wants in life. He wants a wife. So they have a firstborn son named Er. And I think to us, yeah, Judah, you're erring a little bit by going down here. But God would use it. 
just like God is faithful to use things in all our lives. But Aaron means awake. So the first son awake. So Judah feels like, man, I've had my first son. I'm awake. I know what real life is all about. I'm down here. I'm doing my thing. I found a wife. I'm having a son. Man, he's awake. I'm awake. And isn't that our culture today that thinks they're so woke for the things that they're involved in, the things that they think are truth? He has a second son named Onan, strong. Maybe he was a strong little boy, like I think my little Timothy is going to be. But maybe Judah felt like he was strong. Now, I got two kids. I'm doing my own thing. I'm woo, Two boys, especially in this culture, having another boy was a big deal. They could help you do a lot of things. And finally, their baby son is named Shelah. That means a petition. He was asking for another one, and he got one. Positioning that where he's living now, and I'm not saying it right, it's uh, Chezib or Kezib. And the name of that place means false. That where Judah's hanging out, where Judah's set up his life and his goals, is not the true place. Yes, God would give them this whole land. Yes, God would turn him into a nation. We'll see that God will even use even more messed up situations in the rest of this chapter to bring about his will and purpose. But come on, guys, we got to be in the right place. The right place for things to go right and go well with us. Because you go down and start hanging around the wrong places, you're going to get involved in the wrong things. Don't expect to go down and hang out with the bad kids after school and expect to get your homework done. Expect to get straight A's. Don't expect to go hang around a tattoo parlor and never get tattooed. Now, I'm not saying don't get tattooed. I'm saying don't get tattooed. But sincerely... You know, you start hanging around these places, you go to movie theater, you're, you know, you're not going to hang around the lobby. Eventually, you'll buy a ticket and go in. Well, obviously, we see that some time passes in these verses because he ends up taking a wife for his oldest son, Er. So Er's growing up, I don't know, how, you know, teenager, I don't know what age they are here. But he takes the name of this world named Tamar, or Tamar. And we might not think of that as an attractive name, but her name means palm tree. And I'm sure in the desert... In that area, palm tree is a very beautiful thing. Something that has coconuts, something that is uh, refreshing and shady, and something about, about the beach and the coastal life. That she's probably a beautiful woman. But it says that Er, Judah's firstborn son, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Lord killed him. The word wicked is wicked. If we remember that God didn't kill Cain. In the beginning, Cain killed his brother. Cain was wicked. Cain didn't want to worship God, and God gave him a pass. But after the flood, and especially when God's trying to build a nation, he's not going to stand for any wickedness. Now, I don't think God is going to kill you or I necessarily if we're wicked. I think, like the Bible says, if you live by the sword, you die by it. If you begin to live a wicked life, you'll die by it, right? I don't think that this was just a consequence of his wicked living you know, that he was out drinking and got in a bar fight or something. I think that God actually killed him, like the scripture says. Again, we don't know what he did. The Bible doesn't tell us. I looked at the commentary, like, I must be missing something. The commentary says, we have no idea what he did, but it was wicked. And God killed him for it. And this son, Er, was obviously wicked through and through. If this was just a mistake, just a one-time thing, I don't think God would have killed him. I think that this boy was wicked from the womb and out. And God says that he makes vessels for honor and dishonor, right? I'm reminded about the Bible talking about the discipline of a child. That we need to guard them from the wickedness of society. That we need to teach them the right way to go from even the beginning. And sadly enough, even with more shootings this weekend, that's wicked. 
People who do go out and do that and shoot innocent people are wicked. They're not afraid to get shot back because they're in a gun-free zone. I tell you what, I'm locked and loaded today. If someone comes in here, I will shoot them if they try and shoot my family. I will not be a victim in that sense. And yet my heart still breaks for these people who lost. I think about my kids going to the mall and going to Walmart and getting shot. But I'm not going to let that happen if at all possible I can. But the fact that people in this day and age go out and do this, I tell you, it's not the gun's fault. It's our society's fault. It's their parents' fault. It's their fault. Why? Because we put a wickedness in high places and we've said, God, we don't want anything else to do with you. We've said, you come from evolution, that you have no point, you have no purpose, you're not valued. Love is whatever you want it to be, except for true, sacrificial, holy love. And we wonder why people are going out and becoming absolutely wicked through and through. Even the highest echelons of society, this guy getting arrested, all these politicians going to this island and abusing young women. Tell me that's not wicked. There are people who are wicked through and through, and that's why there's a death penalty. Give them an opportunity to repent, and then that's it. Because we, when we allow wickedness to go on and not deal with it right away in a strong and even violent manner at times, it's going to spread. 30, 50, 60, 70 years ago, would you have thought that our society would look like this today? Heaven forbid. I'll tell you why it is. Because we gave room to wickedness. And God would now allow the wickedness to continue in his people. In fact, later on in, in uh, the law, God says that they're to stone a child who is continually rebellious. I can't imagine stoning any of my children to death. Even the worst things that they do, I'm like, I, I give them mercy and grace. Even if I'm really hard on them, you know, it's hard for me to live with. But I do that because I don't want them to grow up and become wicked. I don't want them to learn that a little wickedness is okay in their life. And God doesn't allow a little wickedness in my life either. Proverbs 19.18 says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. So when there's time, chasten him while you still have hope. When he's the age of error and he's still doing wickedness, he's grown. He's totally set in his ways. Nothing ain't going to stop him from doing his wickedness now. But even then, when we do chasten and discipline our children, we're not doing it to destroy them. We're doing it to save them. Like the, the Bible says, to, to remove the wickedness from their heart. And it also says to don't stop just because they're crying. That's good, but a lot of people cry all the time. And it doesn't mean that they're sorry or they've repented. They're sorry that they got caught, right? But again, it's important to discipline our children, especially if they are rebellious. There's a dis different measure of discipline on my children if they mess something up on purpose or if it's just an accident. Again, not to destroy them, but to save them from the coming destruction. Because they'll destroy their own lives. They continue in wickedness, they're going to bring plenty of destruction on their own lives where God doesn't even have to judge them. They judge themselves with their lives. While Onan, the middle son, the little brother to Er, he's obviously not the most righteous guy either, but hey, you know, I'll marry my sister, sure. I'll marry my sister-in-law, sure. I'll you know, give an heir to my brother. He agrees. I'm sure his dad talked to him about it. But when it comes time, when it comes time to do it, when it comes time comes time to be intimate with his new wife, and he knows that if she bears a son, it's not going to be his. It's going to carry on his brother's name. I'm going to do all this. I'm going to do all this work. I'm going to give myself to this lady. I'm going to raise this child that's going to be my brother's. Yeah, I'm not doing that for my brother. Does that not sound like Cain? Am I my brother's keeper? 
Cain, where's your brother? Oh, I don't know. You know exactly where he is, Cain. And so what does he do? Well, he sleeps with Tamar. And yet he doesn't finish. He emits on the ground, it says, that his seed is spilled. And I'm not saying that he's using birth control here and that's ungodly. I'm saying he doesn't want anything to do with the godly thing of taking care of this lady, of taking care of his brother and his family's legacy. He's like, I'm just going to use her and abuse her and call it a day. How would Tamar feel at this point? <laughs> She's got to marry this guy. Her husband's gone. She just, you know, it'd be nice for her to have an heir. And he just totally disrespects her in that most intimate time. He was selfish. He didn't care for anyone but himself. And he admits on the ground. And again, I think he wanted the benefits of the sexual relationship, but didn't want to adhere to the requirements for it. Didn't want the responsibility that came for it when it didn't benefit him. And yet God says to us to be fruitful and to multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Again, I'm not saying birth control in the large scope of the word is a bad thing. But we need to define the terms. Because you obviously want to be wise about the number of kids you have. You know, I can't afford 19 kids and counting. Four, maybe a little bit more one day, is the most I could probably afford. Even then, man, it's got to be a miracle. <laughs> Find enough room for these kids to grow up in to feed them. I can't imagine what the grocery bill is going to be like in high school. But obviously, we have Ash's health to consider. She's had four C-sections by necessity. We tried to go the other way, but at this point, it's risky. And so we have to consider, how are we going to handle this for our, uh, the, the joy of our marriage and the safety of her health and a child's health? So I have to wonder, what are the methods and the motive? Because those are different stories when it comes to birth control. His method, in this case, was dishonorable. And his motive was wicked. And God killed him for that. He didn't kill anybody. But he didn't have a baby. He didn't take care of, didn't take care of his new wife. Didn't take care of his family. God says, you're worse than an unbeliever if you don't take care of your family. So I ask, and I think the scripture might ask us, and more than that, God really is looking. God knows our motive, and he might prompt us and prod us and say, well, Christian, what's your motive? Are you on birth control so you can sleep around outside of marriage? Are you young and single? And yeah, you believe God, you go to church, but you have a healthy, active, sexual lifestyle, and the Bible doesn't talk about that. Yes, it does. So what's your motive? Do you not want to have kids? Are you married and just like your life the way it is? You're happy with the dog and you just don't want to have kids? And hey, if you don't want to have kids, I'm not telling you to, to have kids and force yourself to do it. I would say pray about it. Because the Bible says, be fruitful and multiply it. And if you're able to have kids, why wouldn't you? I understand the timing. I understand other things that you might want to consider and pray about. I'm not saying just rush in and have four kids. I don't know anyone who would just have four kids in seven years. And a year after you being married, have the first baby. I don't know anyone who does that. But I tell you, it's a little easier to have kids when you're younger. <laughs> but then we can look at the methods themselves. How are these methods developed? 
How do they even work? Do they truly prevent birth? Or do they just end one? Or cause one prematurely? A lot of the methods that we call birth control is really abortion. Take a pill the day after, that's not preventing it. That's preventing that baby from continuing its life. Operations. There's operations for her, there's operations for him. I even heard of these operations not even being effective, even in the female version. It's no guarantee. Well, well then what? Then what happens? And with that, again, I'm not telling you what to do necessarily. I'm telling you, are you sure God wants you to be done having children? So much so that you're willing to permanently alter your body. And maybe that's the case for the sake of your spouse's health, for the sake of their life and a possible child's life. You're going to take all the precautions you can to do that. And again, I think that can be totally honorable if it's what God is leading you to do. But are there other options? Aren't there other methods in a healthy relationship? These things that can help supplement the relationship and still not end up in pregnancy? Yes, there are. Like I mentioned earlier, if you and your spouse agree to it and the Lord doesn't tell you, don't do that. I'll be honest, there's some things the Lord says, don't do that. Okay, Lord. Then you are free to do those things. Perhaps it would prevent 19 kids and counting in a good way. And you still wouldn't have to take a drug that really isn't birth control. Or perhaps it would keep you from straying from your marriage into things that you're doing to try and fulfill those passions elsewhere. Because remember, marriage is the place for passion, just like fire. A fireplace is a place for fire. Careful on this one, but perhaps the divorce rate in church wouldn't be so high if the sex rate in marriage wasn't so low. Because let's be honest, aren't most divorces about sex? Isn't it you started dating someone else well why did you date someone else why were you not satisfied like the bible says be satisfied with the wife of your youth let her breast satisfy you at all times be ravished with her love to drink the water from your own well so to speak because the sexual relationship it's not the end all be all it's not the answer it doesn't it's not what you should build your relationship on but you know what it can be used to help problem solving. It can use to help open up channels of communication. And without it, major problems quickly erupt. Ever get hangry? Well, I guarantee that if you guys haven't been intimate in a while, you might get hangry with each other. But back to the story at hand, God killed him for this. God killed this man because he did this. Again, will God kill you for taking birth control or using this method? No. But again, the Lord was doing something here. The Lord was working on starting a nation and the foundation had to be solid. The foundation had to be righteous. And even with Judah and his unrighteous sons and their Canaanite wives, God was willing to do something and work there. It reminds me of the deaths in early Acts of Ananias and Sapphira. The beginning of the church, God strikes two people dead because they lied about how much they were giving and why they were giving it, the what and the motive. 
They didn't have to give it all. They didn't have to give it all. But they lied about it. And it brought fear upon the church. And I think that's what God is trying to do here. Bring fear upon them and say, hey, you guys need to live a moral life. But I think it's unfair that Judah asked Tamar to remain a widow. Judah says, okay, uh, both your husbands have died. God killed them both. Why well, just hang out in my house, hang out and wait for my youngest son to grow up. You're a young lady. You're a childbearing age. You're probably attractive. But you know what? Just go hang out and wait five years, 10 years, 20 years. I don't think that's the fair thing for him to ask. I think he's being a little too controlling here. I'm not going to read it for time, but in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16, it talks about instruction for widows. That if they're young, they need to go get married. Don't rush off and get married, but if not, you're going to grow one. You're going to grow and be a busybody. Or you might even do what Tamar starts doing. Maybe you'll go out to a bar and get involved in relationships and seek men that you shouldn't be seeking. So now Tamar's got to wait for a Shelah to grow up. How awkward is that? You know, maybe he's a teenager. I don't know if you've ever seen Star Wars. And they have the little boy and they have to wait for him to grow up and he marries Queen Amidala. It's... It's awkward. But this little boy is going to grow up and marry you and then sleep with you and give you an heir? Is this even who he wants to marry? Like Aunt Tamar? Sister-in-law Tamar, really? Judah, what are you thinking? He's got one son left. I think, he, you know, like a lot of us guys, we try and do stuff in our own strength. But he's got this moral drive to have heirs, this moral drive to take care of his sons and his daughter-in-law. But I think it's done in a totally twisted way. And so often with these things in life, we claim some sort of high moral ground. And I will claim all day long that the Bible is a high moral ground. And I want to climb up and be on that high moral ladder. But I don't want to speak down to people about it. Because I myself am not capable of living a moral life outside of the Holy Spirit. But our decision making process, a lot of times we claim a high moral ground and we're blind to the real facts of who's getting hurt, of what the real cost is. And a lot of people use that for the case for abortion or, or birth control. Well, who's really getting hurt? You're killing a baby. <laughs> if you just could you know, keep it in your pants, so to speak, you wouldn't need it. If you would just go and get married and do the honorable thing, you might not need it. If you would be interested in the right type of girl or right type of guy, you might not need it. I think the real cost is to ourselves. The real cost is... To our pride, the real cost is to laying down our lives and doing the right thing. A lot of times it costs our families, our loved ones, but ultimately it costs society and God's kingdom. That when we live in an immoral way, God's kingdom can't come in the midst of that. So Judah, maybe you should have stayed at home instead of trying to sow those wild oats and build your own kingdom just because you're a man now. Let's go on. Verse 12 says, now the, in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died, and Judah was comforted. And he went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, and to his friend here of the Dolomites. He's going back to hang out with his friend again after his wife dies. And it was told to Tamar, saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear a sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. And again, I want to point out in all this, that God is on Tamar's side in all of this. 
Even though she doesn't do the right thing, God is trying to watch out for her by having these different things take place. So when Judah saw her, verse 15, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she said, will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, what pledge shall I give to you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. So she rose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on her garments of her widowhood. And we'll stop there for now. So we see that Judah's wife died. He says, he's comforted. They mourn. They have the time of mourning. He goes up and he's like, I'm going to go hang out with my friend again. I'm going to go by the sheep shears. And it says that uh, this was told to, to Tamar. I don't know why it was told to her. Maybe, you know, she's waiting around to get married and now he's, he's going away to do something else. Like, when are you going to get married now? Like, his wife just died. You're supposed to be married off. And what's happening now? So she takes off her widow's garments. You know, she's probably not very attractive in these things. She's wearing, you know, the old stained sweatsuit. Watching her TV shows in the day. I don't know. But she's mad, I bet. And she's burned that she's waited so long that this young boy she was told to wait for, she's been good and waited for him, is now of marrying age and she hasn't been married off and Judah's off doing his thing again. So she goes up after her father-in-law. And she had this plan all along. She was crafty. And it's creepy. You know, there's that saying, hell has no fury like a woman scorned. And that's true. Judah had no idea what was coming for him. But she's obviously not a righteous woman. She's not a believer. Her morals are corrupt. She's had some odd experiences. Remember, both her husbands were killed by God. And the second girl didn't want her and used her anyway. And now she's had to wait around for the third baby son to grow up. So she dresses like a prostitute. And she goes out there and runs ahead of Judah and sits on the side of the road looking like she means business. And you know, this has been called the world's oldest profession and I think because men are willing to pay for it and women are willing to sell it. You might say, I would never do that. I would never go out and be a harlot. But did you sleep with him on the first date before you were a Christian? Hopefully not after being a Christian. Was your price just dinner at Denny's? Fancy restaurant? The hope of a relationship? I think you and Judah and I need to keep reading Proverbs. If you read Proverbs 7, 6 through 27, we won't go there for a time. It talks about watching out for this crafty lady who goes out by the street and dresses provocatively and calls to all those who come by, come in to me, come in and have your way. But what he doesn't know is that her ways are the ways of death and she goes down to hell. I think it's really interesting that Judas says, please. The Bible says, please. Sees her, she's on the side of the road, he goes, excuse me, ma'am, can I please come in to you? Was he nerdy? Was he not? Was he being polite? Was he begging? I don't know, but I think it's interesting I said, please. At least he was polite in the whole matter. He didn't force her, right? But you know, he didn't recognize her. I guess they had this thing, where I guess, where they would cover their faces. And if you were a harlot, you covered your face. And 
I guess it's some way to keep honor to your family. I mean, you live in a small town, you know who everyone is. So at least if you cover your face, there's this pretension of not seeing you. And you think about all these quote unquote gentlemen's club and it's dark in there. There's a shame element to it. I don't know if you've watched cops or any other episodes, but I think some of these prostitutes out there do need to wear a veil because they ain't very attractive from doing drugs and being out there. And again, you wonder, who, if you're going to go do this, why are you going to go do it with that person? Again, I think it's kind of like the, the saying about beer goggles. You go out, you drink, you're, you're intoxicated by alcohol or you're intoxicated by your fleshly desires and you're not quite seeing straight. You've got a veil over your eyes and you're getting involved in something that if it wasn't 4 a.m., you might not get involved in. So go to sleep. She says, what will you give me? So they're bartering. Sure. What's your price? Name your price. I think what's gross and worst about this is that she was willing to sleep with her father-in-law. To get what she wanted wasn't a big deal for her to do this. We even see in the Corinthian church that something like this goes on and the church thinks that it's noble for allowing it. Paul says, get them out of here. Get them out and when they repent, they can come back. You are not tolerant. You are not more holy. You are not more spiritual because you're allowing this to go on in your midst. I have to say, are we reading about the precursor to an episode of some trashy TV? It certainly sounds like it. Might turn on some TV shows. <laughs> well, I was walking up going to shear my sheep and my daughter-in-law, you know, like, this is whack, guys. It's in the Bible, and it's for a reason. But he offers to pay her a goat. I know goat is big money, even today in some cultures. But ladies, if he tries to woo you with that little hairy, smelly animal, do I even need to tell you that you're worth more than that? You're worth more than even his signet ring and his staff, more than his checkbook, more than his private jet, more than his fancy life. He met all these trophy wives or wives. It's obvious you married him because he's rich. I always told Ash before we got married, are you sure you want this life? Because I didn't even have a goat or a signet ring to give her. But she wanted the life to follow God. But immediately after this, she goes back to dressing in the widow's attire. That she conceives that this act that they do, there is no control there. And she goes back into her widow's attire. She knew how to dress it up. And either she was doing it just temporarily or she was hurrying back to not be discovered or both. But I believe the situation revealed what kind of woman she really was. Her outfit didn't really matter. Her actions showed what she was like. I believe it was Chuck Smith who said this. He says, you're not a thief because you stole. You stole because you're a thief. You put yourself in these situations, you stand by the side of the road at the club, at school, you go by and you start going to parties, guys, or putting yourself next to women like this. Be careful. And you be very careful who you marry. But also don't ask a woman if you can sleep with her, especially if you don't know her, can't see her face. You want to get to know her face before you marry her. And you know, Jacob woke up and uh, he said, whoa, Leah, your eyes. Are tired. <laughs> You're not Rachel. You don't look like her. But more than that, you want to see her and her true godly character. And just because you're sad and your wife is dead and you have needs, Judah, doesn't mean that this random woman by the side of the road is the one 
you should be meeting your needs with. You know better. Well, see later, you know much better than to do this. He's got this outward appearance of holiness and this inward, well, does what he does. And you and I might say, man, I would never do that. But have you ever asked the internet to show you, please, Google, show me what I want? It's to my shame that I've done that before. I've struggled with that before. In fact, it makes me want to get rid of my smartphone at times because it's like, it's so easy to find if you really want to find it. Commentary from David Guzik says, when Tamar conceived, it certainly was not intended by Judah. Well, what was he thinking? Did he think it wasn't possible? But it was definitely planned by both Tamar and God. Tamar planned. This is what Tamar wanted to happen. And God allowed it. And again, these, these are not God's methods, but I believe that God allowed these things to happen and allowed certain things to happen in our lives due to our actions or inactions. And he'll give us the fruits of our labor, so to speak, even if it is a consequence. So if you got pregnant with your significant other, your believers, I would counsel you to get married. If you're not, get saved and get married. Come to the Lord. You know, you loved each other enough to do that. You can get married. If you can't, well, why were you with them in the first place? If you don't want to spend your lives with that person, you shouldn't spend a night with them either. Again, I'm not above these things. There's things in my life that have happened that even before and after Christ that God has forgiven me for and even allowed me to go into ministry after. But I knew, I knew that it was Ashley was the right one for me. But imagine if she wasn't. Imagine if I didn't know she was from the Lord. It would be rough. I don't know that I'd be in ministry. I know I certainly couldn't do it if she wasn't by my side and she wasn't sold out for the Lord. And God knows. God's able to restore. God's able to forgive. God's able to resurrect. But sincerely, it's more important to marry the right person. Don't try it out first. We find that even a lot of relationships that try it out first, like, oh, I'm afraid to get married. Let me try living with them first. That ruins it. Don't get entangled in the relationship first. Let God tie the knot. Don't be like those two cords under your TV that get wrapped up together and it's impossible to separate. You know, there's a real joining of hearts and souls that goes on. And this poor lady's been joined to Er, been door, uh, endure, uh, joined to Onan. And now she's tied to Judah. Her heart is trashed at this point. God can fix it and God can save it. And again, I probably don't blame her for the things she's gone through in a sense. Man, there's parts of my heart I wish I could get back. There's aches I wish I could just get rid of. But it's a consequence. So don't give yourself over those things. Be wise and wait. Let's read the last 10 verses together and we'll close. It says, And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Dolomite. So again, Hira, Judah's right-hand guy, this is his wingman, to receive a pledge from the woman's hand, but he did not find her. Then he asked the men in the place, saying, Where's the harlot that was openly by the roadside? What a question to ask, right? And they said, There was no harlot in this place, Judah. So he returned to, uh, uh, to uh, I'm sorry, so Hira returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of this place said there was no harlot in this place. 
So Judah's not even admitting that he's with her. His friend knows, but his friend was kind of taking the brunt for him. And said, let her take them for himself, thinking of the signet ring and everything else, lest we be shamed. For I have sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is pregnant by harlotry. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burnt. <laughs> All right, Judah, this is kind of strict, ain't it? And when she, and she, he knew the right and wrong. I mean, you know, no one's going to say that if he doesn't know what's right and wrong. But when, and he's like, my sons, my daughter-in-law, and you're going to go out and do that? I've been saving you and waiting you and taking care of you for this? But when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. Uh-oh, Judah. And so Judah acknowledged them, verse 26, and said, she had been more righteous than I because I did not give her Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again, meaning he never had a relationship with her again, uh, sexual relationship. So now it came to pass, verse 27, at that time for giving birth, that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was that she was giving birth, that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly, as she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So we see that Judah sends the payment for this harlot by his friend. He's not even man enough to go do it by himself. Um, perhaps he wanted to diss himself, or he just couldn't be bothered with it. It wasn't worth it to him. So his friend's going back up there. Hey, friend, you're going back up there. You've got to go back to the sheep. Can you just take this goat with me and pay the harlot on the way? Again, ladies, you're worth more than a goat. Born two goats. But the guys tell him, hey, here, uh, there's no harlot around here. Not that we know of. You know, there's certain places that prostitutes are. I remember places in New York, upstate where we were, that was like, you know, this is where the drugs are. This is where the harlots are. And you stay away from there. You don't want to be around that. You want your kids seeing that. You don't want to get pulled over or being suspected for that. So he says, all right, you know, we can't find her, we can't pay her. Let her just keep the rest of this stuff so at least we don't come to shame. You know, we at least gave her something. Again, he was worried about being shamed for not fulfilling his duty to a harlot. And yet he forgot his duty to his daughter-in-law to marry her off. And Judah, shouldn't you be ashamed of sleeping with the harlot in the first place? You knew right and wrong. You wanted to burn your daughter-in-law for doing it. But somehow you've got a double standard. It's okay for you to do it, but not for her. I know there were no Ten Commandments yet. But obviously the moral law is plain to see. Just like you look around, creation clearly reveals the invisible attributes, the, visible, the invisible attributes of God. Again, there would be no such thing as a harlot or called a prostitute or treated lesser or have to cover her face if there wasn't obviously some moral discrepancy there. People talk, well, Adam and Eve weren't married, so we're married before God. Guys, it's not 6,000 years ago. There's laws. The Bible also says to be subject to the government. The government wants you to have a marriage certificate before them. And even if, just because you slept together, it doesn't mean that you got married. We have tradition now in the church to get married. The scripture says, get married. 
doesn't say that sleeping together marries you. It marries your souls, but you're not married before God unless you actually come before him. And he sees it all anyway, but it doesn't mean that he condones it. So let's honor him. Get married. You really love that person? It shouldn't be a big deal. Even just go down to the courthouse. The truth is, you don't really love the person. You don't really want to be truthfully committed to them. If you're really committed to them, it ain't going to be a big deal to be legally committed to them. But he wants her burned for playing the harlot. It reminds me of the woman who was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus by all these Pharisees. Well, how was she caught? Where's the guy she was with? It's probably one of their buddies. And they just brought her out to blame her because they were above it. Somehow it's wrong for her to do it, but okay for them. Because you think that that person is trashy or that, you know, these people who expose themselves and you look at are worse than you. Well, you know what? You're joining yourself to them. You become one with them and they with you. So don't think that it doesn't affect you. Don't think that you have some high ground because you're the one paying for it. And Judah, not only did she go out and do this and get pregnant by it, but it was you. She was much wiser than Judah, much craftier. She got it. She had this all figured out. He's like, I'm going out. I'm going to, well, your goat's okay. You can pay me later with the goat, but give me your signet. Give me the proof that you, give me your wallet. Give me your driver's license. Give me your checkbook. She was much wiser than him. And we hear stories of crazy girlfriends or boyfriends of cheating spouses that they blackmail and they stay with. I'll go tell your wife. I'll go tell your job. You know, the person who's going to do that with you is probably not the most sound in mind. So uh, you bring it upon yourself there, buddy. But I love that Judah says she's been more righteous than I. Even though what she did was totally unrighteous in a way, totally crafty, totally deceitful, totally immoral in a way, it was still more righteous than Judah. Judah goes, even then, I should have taken care of her. should have married her off. I shouldn't have forced her to do this. I should have been more concerned about her than myself. And we think about Catholics, I won't even call it a church, but Catholics and sex abuse. I'll tell you why. Because you shouldn't be suppressing your desires. The Bible doesn't say you have to be celibate to be in the priesthood. Paul says, it's not a commandment. You know, if you're gifted like me to do it, then, then go for it and, and do it. But if you burn, get married. And to tell people they can't get married, and then somehow that's a service to God, and that's a disservice to God. And when you begin to suppress those desires that cannot and should not be suppressed, it's no surprise that they corrupt and they get, um, just like food or anything else good that you don't take care of, they become perverted and it hurts other people. And it's kept buried. You know, again, a conversation with a friend and I were having this week about a Christian author who's totally renounced his faith in Jesus and taken all his books about sexual purity and how to... Uh, date before marriage and all these things off the market and he's apologized for them and apologized for his views to people of sexual perversion. And he, the one thing that stuck out to me is he kept saying doctrine, 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 the doctrine I was under, the doctrine I grew up with. I'm like, that's exactly it. You were living for the law. 
You were living under a law, under a doctrine. You weren't living with God. Because when you come to God, you're free of the law. You're free to have a relationship with your spouse. Honestly, I don't think we need books on how to date before marriage. I think you are a Christian. They're a Christian. You guys are serving God together. You come alongside each other. Don't wait two and a half years to get married. If God tells you to, to, to date them, if it's okay to date them, then you need to get married. You're keeping fire by your side there. And you're trying to suppress something that God's saying, why are you suppressing it? Oh, because society says it's, you're going to rush into marriage and you're too young? Well, if I brought you together. I brought you together. And yes, I'll have to remember this when my daughters and sons are of marrying age. We get married. And have a relationship with Jesus. Don't have a relationship with His Word. Let the Word draw you to Him. As we close here, we see that twins were born similar to Jacob and Esau. They seem to be fighting it out. One gets his hand out. And so they put a red ribbon around him and then it gets his hand pulled back in and then the other one comes out first. It's like they're fighting in there. And essentially that Perez is called breach. And, you know, I was, uh, you know, breach pregnancies when they're going to come out the wrong way. And obviously they're coming out the wrong way if their hands are coming out first, right? Um, but they were twins. Uh, and uh, the ancestors of two families of Judah, the Hezronites and the Hamalites. And from the Hezronites came the royal line of David and Christ. But this is why God thought this was so important. Is that eventually David would come from the children of Tamar. And eventually, Jesus. God wasn't playing around when it came to the Messiah. But that's the whole point of this chapter. Why did we take this detour into chapter 38 and find out what all this crazy stuff Judah's doing? Because God wanted to show that he had a plan for a king to come. He had a plan for the Messiah to come. He had a plan for the holy line. And yes, it even involved Judah and Tamar. Because again, this is another strange story. But it gives us a glimpse into what God truly cares about. Obviously the Messiah, obviously his people, but also family and honor. And I'm glad these things are here, even though it's super awkward, because they highlight our need for Jesus. Not for doctrine, not for some set of rules and puritanical laws. Well, some of them are probably good to have. You don't want to, you know, you want to have certain laws on the books. But they highlight our need for Jesus. And they highlight our need to deal with these things that so clearly define our need for Jesus. Because if we suppress the things like our passions and desires, and we think that God has nothing to do with these passions and desires in our life, we're going to get ourselves in trouble because God has everything to do with these. God created marriage. God created male and female for marriage. And you have to wonder why the world is so confused about even male and female because we've forgotten the purpose of them. It's holy marriage. And if you're physically able to have children. And even then, it's bigger than that. It's a picture of Jesus and his care for the church. And if your marriage looks like Jesus in the church, your marriage probably looks pretty good. And if it doesn't, ask him to help you. Make him the center of your marriage. It's a struggle. It's not going to happen easily. It's something you have to fight for. You have to go for What I love is as we close, that even in the midst of these things, God was there. God had a plan from before the foundations of the earth for the Messiah to come. And he allowed it to be through these people. 
even in a messed up situation, say, look, even the messianic line is imperfect because you guys are imperfect and that's why I want the Messiah to come because he's perfect and he'll forgive you and he'll save you and he'll make you right with me again. Let's get him into the world. Because if God does it here with Judah and Tamar and their family and their dysfunction, he's also showing you and I that he's going to do it in your and my life and in our families and in our dysfunction. And I don't know that our dysfunction is as big as bad as this is. Maybe it is. But God did something great through it. And he's ready and willing to do something great in your tragedy, your dysfunction, and your mess. Why? Because... To tie it back together, this is Genesis, God and man. That God loves you so much that he would die for you, take the shame of your sin, even your transgression, and instead of killing you for it, he killed his son. And rose his son back to life that you and I might have life in him. We can't have life on our own. We can't make it up as we go along. We can't try and get exact revenge. You know, Tamar didn't end up married. She had this son that God was giving to her, in a sense, you know, these twins, really. And it's just a messed up situation. How much better it would have been, I think, if Judah had just obeyed God from the beginning and and not trying to do it on his own. So God, help us not to do things on our own. Help us to know that you're with us no matter how disgusting we feel or how awful the thing is that we've done. And God, please deal with their hearts, the perversions that lie in them, the sin with them. Please deal with them. It's not how we were born. And even if it was, God, you can fix it. You can make it right. You can make it holy. Perhaps then... We were meant to be celibate. We were meant to follow you and serve you and not be married and be totally sold out to you. Maybe that's what it really means. But I don't know, God. You know for sure. And you are willing to walk through each one of us no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, and to bring us into a better place that's good for us and healthy for us. So, God, do that by your word and by your spirit. And through your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.